I think I would have done myself better just to say, like, if you're getting into this, you're getting into this to pursue this for a long period of time. That's not how we talk about entrepreneurship, especially tech entrepreneurship. It's start it, scale it, raise money, liquidate it, sell it, go on your whatever trip. I think it'd be better for us. And for me, it's been like, okay, let me just think about building something with no end in mind. I'm just trying to build the best thing possible. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Today's guest, we have Brian Zerker. I've known Brian for a while now. Brian is the CEO of Align. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Callan. We hey. are. We're getting old. You've known me for more than a couple of years. That is exactly <laughs> right. In this startup world, we've probably known each other yeah. for, I don't know, two decades. Uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it is dog years. It is 100% in dog years in the startup world. So tell us a little bit about Align and what you're doing with Align. Yeah, Align was born out of the problem of watching companies not be able to figure out how to help employees reach what we would call like peak performance. So if you imagine not feeling like you can get your best work done in the work experience, so with real estate, tools, tech, just the way you do business, we watch companies just missing on that. They're testing against mission values, the employee engagement test, but they're not really thinking about functional work. And so as we started to study that, we realized that there was an opportunity to build an assessment, understand analytics insights for companies so they can invest in that experience. So real estate's expensive. Should we have it? What should it be? So Align helps companies navigate that, build a baseline, understand the personas of the workforce, and then how to invest to improve the performance of work. And I know this was not the first company that, that you founded. You founded <laughs> many. Where did this all start? Oh, let's see here. Let's get the bourbon out in the morning. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Hopewell, as some Columbus names would know, was co-working lab. We were really trying to understand our own interest in experience. So as many people have been around, like you kind of just sort of end up in an office sometimes when you do a startup. So the last two companies we'd had, we just opened up an office and randomly put furniture in there and told it kind of worked out in a way, but it definitely wasn't thoughtful and intentional. And if you scale that all the way up to big companies, you notice they're having almost the same kind of problems. There's intent, there's facilities management. You know, that's a pretty clinical way of talking about the, the space where you're trying to do work. Mm -hmm. And my my business partner, Emily, and I had just, we'd been knocking our heads on that saying, there's something missing. Like with tools and tech and mobility, there's something off here about the way we put ourselves into these boxes and the way we do work. And, you know, we'd all been at, you know, conferences. You, you go to San Francisco back in the, the mid 2000s and it was becoming like a Whole Foods at every office and there's free transportation, but none of that really was in Columbus at the time, but it also just didn't seem to solve the problem. Okay, free food and ping pong tables and all that kind of stuff. That's not what people need to do great work. It's not connecting people better. It's not helping you perform. So we started to think about that. And that's really how hopeful we were like, let's create a space that really emphasizes removing isolation out of your life and also helping you have better quality time with people, whether that's one-on-one, -on -one, by yourself, group work. And that was the inception. We got like a student union for adults, you know, at the time. It was a coffee shop, private rooms, meeting rooms, space to connect. And it got us into the industry at that point. Then we got into the interiors industry, the real estate industry, the furniture industry, all these people who surround that experience 
have a dog in that fight. And uh, to credit Continental and Irish Sharfin, really, he adopted the concept with us. They used it as a, a showroom for their work. And that was, then we were off to the races. But I had no background in real estate interiors, human performance at work. Uh, Emily had been running HR at Chipotle for about a decade. So she had insight into the challenges facing companies to get feedback from the field mm-hmm. on how it's going. One of the things that I didn't realize, so Hopewell was more of, that was actually supposed to be just kind of more of the showcase and the main company was behind the scenes of that. Is that right? Yeah. And that was not how it was incepted. You know, like every business plan, the business plan was dead the day it started. Um, (laughs) So we started out the space wanting to have that, but by way of our relationship with Continental, we'd have their clients coming in and often be senior executives from bigger companies. And we'd we'd be talking with them and, and we'd be asking questions and probing back to them, who are you trying to make your space for? What do you know about them? What kind of work do they do? And they're kind of glaze over and go, I don't know. You're like, okay, so your number two most expensive asset besides labor is going to be real estate. And you have no real clue on what the expectations and KPIs are outside of cost efficiencies, those types of things. Mm -hmm. And that was when we realized that's weird that you would operate so blindly on this in order to get to an outcome. And so that was really where we started to say, is there metrics out there either existing or things that we could create that would give us insight into someone's performance at work. We became somewhat obsessed with the concept of flow and a flow state, but primarily because it was one of the few things that people could understand and self-describe to say, can I do uninterrupted work for 45 minutes? And that became one of our center pieces of trying to understand someone's work experience, which it turns out most companies unintentionally <laughs> get in the way of people doing uninterrupted work. And you know, I could speak to all the reasons that happens, but our idea was from an individual standpoint, can we understand what is important, what is necessary, what are preferences for them to be able to get their work done? So Hopewell was growing and it was really becoming like the spot in Columbus. If you're in the downtown area, I mean, that's where everybody was. And I, I was a member and yeah. I went quite a bit. COVID hit, what's going on in your mind when the <laughs> shutdowns are happening, right? You've got yeah. this space that is like, for all intents, I mean, taken off. Like it was yeah. the spot to go. How are you experiencing that? Yeah. Well, it was good and bad, right? I mean, the bad part was obviously, I think we, you know, I've been listening to people recall the first few weeks of March in 2020 and you start to go, oh yeah, we did all think that was going to be over in a couple of weeks and it obviously wasn't. So we had a hard stop on the space. It was shut down. Revenues from the space are, are sort of cut off. We had a lot of loyal corporate and, and partners who were like, just keep dinging us monthly. We're cool. That was very kind of them to do that, which you know helps support it a little bit. But the opportunity did open up then that we had some time on our hands to really focus then on this other part of what we were thinking about in the business and this assessment and understanding people's work habits. And obviously, we didn't even know at the time that this was going to be a 10-year acceleration of flexibility in the work experience for companies and remote and distributed and all that was happening in the background for companies because of talent crunches, but it wasn't nearly what it is today. And I don't think for the first six months, anyone thought that that was going to become a permanent feature of knowledge work going forward. So for us, it was, uh, yeah, it was a challenge. It helps you set your priorities fairly straight, really quick. We, we, you know, we sort of emerged over the coming year 
I think we're in two different businesses and I'm not sure that these businesses are as connected as we think they can be trying to thread a needle between essentially a hospitality company (laughs) and what's becoming a, you know, an analytics company. Very hard to do that without lots of money. So it forced you to focus. Yeah. Did you find that your previous experience just as an entrepreneur or founder, that a pivot like that was easier to make? Or did you find that it was almost more challenging because you had all of this momentum, you're going into it and now it's, I don't want to drop this thing that's working. What was that like for you? Yeah, you know, our previous company was called Flymatch Became Seen. That was in its a pivot from a consumer application to a business to business. You tell yourself, I'm going to remember this in the future and I'm going to act faster on these things. <laughs> and <laughs> you don't. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, there's a bunch of entanglements between momentum relationships, just wanting things to succeed. Competitive people want to see things they've done succeed, right? So it's not as easy to say, oh, you know what? We need to just kill this or sell it or what, you know, whatever you got to do to get really focused. So there's no doubt it took time. I think we also did have the idea that we could still thread the needle between the two and they, they added credibility to each other in a certain way. So directly to answer your question, did the experience help us? I mean, I think it helped us continue to realize that we had to focus, but I'm not sure that it like <laughs> should have helped us act faster. It's also just a thing that had that been a product and a software product, okay, I don't think we're going to do that anymore. Well, we could have killed that off in 30 seconds. It took a couple of weeks to go, hey, team, <laughs> we're focusing on when it's a physical space and leases and, and partnerships and all the, that real estate doesn't unwind itself during a pandemic as easily as you would like it to. So there were some natural forces that just didn't allow us to move as quickly as we might have hoped to. Do you feel that ultimately put you in a better position? Uh, I mean, I think it's rosy colored glasses. I mean, it's painful. Yes, I do ultra marathons. At some point, it always sucks. And the question is, where is the pain you're going to focus on or you're going to continue to move forward, right? And you got to fit one foot in front of the other. So, I mean, we definitely were able to keep putting one foot in front of the other and that was fine. But yeah, I mean, it sucked. I mean, it's just, we also were fans of the product too. And so it was harder to let go of that too. I mean, seeing people like you there, seeing our, we knew there was a quality thing going on. So there's emotional ties to let that go. But yeah, ultimately it was, it was better because we were able to continue to move along the process and get focused. And we were very fortunate to have a lot of friends and partners and investors that were helping us to get to the promised land faster. You know, without that, like it, it only takes one of those things not working for you to then just, it just shuts down or it goes away. So the village thing, you just hope that you don't have any bad villagers. <laughs> How did you prioritize during that? You mentioned this a couple of times and it makes total sense for something like that to survive that was like a thriving physical space with this analytics play. How did you prioritize? Like, how did you decide? Because you could have done anything. You could have done 500 different things. When you looked at that, how did you make those decisions on what was the most important to focus on? Yeah, I think if you're maybe the one thing that wears in the leather more of doing more startups and doing more company, early stage companies is you start to sense what's surfacing to the top for customers, right? So there's things that people always nod their head. Yeah, that sounds great. But there's a fire in the corner of their room. They want a fire hydrant. The future uh, fire safety system thing that they eventually, that's not what they're looking for at the moment. They want the fire hydrant. And so we were able to notice, okay, this trend is going. 
they're very confused about why it's working for some people to work at home. <laughs> what the hell? Why is this going on? And, well, shit, now is our real estate worth anything? Oh, crap. And you can start to see this problem surfacing to the top. And we've seen a, a big flushing out of nice to haves in the last six months. You know, as the economy kind of, the budgets get tight, you know, what surfaces at the top? Stuff that makes your life advance or be easier or essential things. And Making sure your real estate is working for you if you're paying $20 million a year for it becomes pretty essential. If the place is empty, you want to know why. You, you want to know how do you help out people if they're struggling, if labor's tight and is expensive. These are now becoming the, the fires in the corner that they need to get put out. And so we started to notice like, okay, this other stuff is really nice to have. When things are going well, you'll spend discretionary money on going to the nice offsite at Hopewell and having the nice coffee and hanging out with JJ and but if you're like, I need to retain people and I'm losing people because they're telling me they need this, this, and this, and we're not doing it, that bleeding has to stop immediately. And so that was easy for us to sense. Okay. Somebody was willing to write us a check for that, high margin, good business, solving a big problem for them. Let's go over there and keep working on that. Do you have a process for that? And to give you an example, I agree with everything that you just said there. And I think a lot of what you just said is why some of the best companies are actually formed, whether they were started or they may have started just before a tough economy, because you are forced to get to the actual root problem. There can't be any fluff. Yeah. The fluff gets pushed out really quickly because yeah. no one will buy it. And I talk about quite a bit the importance of those customer interviews, like consistently doing yeah. customer interviews to figure out what's actually the most important. How do you figure that out? How do you figure out from there, like what is, you know, and I would say outside of just, well, here's what they're buying, which is a pretty big indicator that yeah. that's where it's something to follow. How do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I would say my, one of my weaknesses is not my strengths um, is I'm an intuition guy, but intuition will get you that first customer, maybe the second customer, because you're sensing that. But the process, I mean, I've been a big fan of Steve Blank's customer development process, the kind of academic sense of the process of customer interviews, feedback, hypothesis, and testing. And I think if you're going to scale up from that intuition from the first time, you know, going from gut, data, gut to data, gut, data is probably that transition uh, that you have to make. So for us, it was, okay, let's go talk to as many, you know, friendlies as we can. And again, I think you you probably know this and, and many of the audience would too, is knowing the qualifying sales traits of someone gives you a better idea of how to ask the right questions, budget, authority, need, and timing. Using that as a model for your questions in the customer discovery process is the same thing as selling, right? Ask for advice, get money, ask for money, get advice, right? So that's how we really thought about that was trying to understand that customer persona, specifically the buyer. And then just to, to get in the weeds on this, like in the corporate real estate world, most corporate real estate managers are kind of like off to the side in the organizations. And then all of a sudden a spotlight got shown on them during the tail end of the really pandemic period saying, hey, tell us the strategy on real estate. And they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and they heard a CEO say, I'm going to cut 50% of real estate. So we noticed that well, they didn't really, you know, they, they've had some budget. They kind of had some authority. They really didn't have a need before. And the timing on real estate is generally like slow. All of a sudden, two of those factors were changing overnight. The need went way up. The timing was now. And so we sensed it, but then we started to get enough 
feedback from the field and through our customer. And we leveraged our existing partners to say, hey, can you help us get in and talk to you know XYZ person? I think that's one of the things that took me a long time to figure out just how to ask for help through people that you know, not just friends, but like you have customers and partners, they probably know more customers and partners as long as they're not competitive. So we were able to leverage that to, to learn faster. Most listeners are going to know what budget authority need timing is or, or band, but essentially for those that don't, it's a sales qualification methodology and you've got budget authority need timing, spiced is another one. Uh, there's literally tons of them, but having one, starting to put a little bit, even in the super early stages, just so you got some sort of structure around whatever's in that earliest stage, right? Zero to one, zero to one million is going to change a hundred percent. It's almost guaranteed it's going to change. Maybe some elements will stick, but it's almost, but put something in place so you know what you to iterate on. And I think that's great advice. You weren't always in startups. You started out at GE, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I did the big company thing and I was in a sales development program that they had there, which admittedly, it was, it was more gathering than hunting because uh, the name GE and, and just the breadth of the network that existed, you didn't have to do the startup hunting. The, the thing I learned mostly being there was just the rigor of process. That was in the heyday of black belt, green belt training and process and teamwork was a big deal. The team I, I landed on was just a bunch of insane hard workers and but was were helping out each other a lot even in a sales way so what didn't fit for me was one i'm not really a salesperson directly in that way Um, and i also wanted to build a product so i ended up leaving to go to a company called woods industries that historically owned the entire consumer electrical aisle at lowe's and depot so you, you probably own an extension cord from them and you didn't know it and I got the ability then to launch a new product line for them, which took me to to China and overseas. And I was 23 or whatever and totally over my skis. And this is pre, pre-cell phone for uh, young Brian. Uh, so going to China, fully uh, analog <laughs> with knowing no Mandarin or Cantonese. Yeah, that was a new experience. Yeah, those two will help over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not that you could get to the websites you want. I remember trying to go to an Ohio State score on ESPN one time on my laptop when I was there and it was denied. <laughs> the Chinese government was not super happy about that. <laughs> they must be Michigan fans. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> so you were at uh, GE and yeah. you learned, and I've heard that from a lot of people. A lot of people say that big company experience, they learned what scale looks like and realize that without that process, like there's a reason all that process is in there because if you don't have it, things will fall apart. It's really hard to truly scale without laying that process in place and and thinking scale. I think just thinking and all the decisions that we do, will this scale? So at the next place, it sounds like that was more, is that more of a kind of an entrepreneur role within a larger company? Yeah. And and in both cases, you know, it's all about people, right? Especially when you're a junior person in a company. And so to just, the experience I had at GE was one experience and then a regime change at the top for the division became a completely different and worse experience. And it was, you know, a loss of a leader. And then every, every, every mid manager <laughs> capitulated to a, a new chameleon color for the new person. I get it. Self, you know, preservation. But well, yeah, at the, at the other company, it was, I had a boss who she was like, look, this is <laughs> mission objective is go here, figure it out. For me, that was truly like, it's my own entrepreneurship I mean, very quote unquote risk-free in the sense that I, I mean, I put my own capital or other people's capital directly up for my job, but it gave me the 
sense of building and being self-sufficient in building. And I mean, I never have lacked a motivational problem, but there is something about keeping yourself on task and process and going. So I felt better in that sandbox than I did at GE because I'm not great at relying on other people for my success. And, you know, I like having coaches and mentors, but I definitely don't like to be told what to do all the time and how to do it. So that was a better sandbox for me to play in. Was it, and then after that company is when you started your first company? Yeah, I went to grad school for, uh, in Rensselaer Polytechnic in, in New York. And I had been, you know, in these kind of low tech world, uh, you know, even a GE, even though it's a, a tech company at the time, really, you know, in the old school way, we were in building construction technologies. This is not pushing the envelope, at least in my role, right? So yeah, I, I saw the opportunity with, this was called 2006, in the Midwest, at least, I was in Indiana at the time. Software startups were still pretty few and far between. So I wanted to get out of Dodge. And RPI offered a program that was around tech commercialization and venture finance. You got paired up with tech graduate students to do stuff. And so for me, it was good. Bounce the Midwest, get out to the East Coast, different flavor of education, you know, for, for those of us who've grown in the land grant school. Either there's schools out there you've never heard of. <laughs> they don't have big football stadiums. In fact, when I remember getting on campus, it was in the fall. I was like, all right, when's homecoming or whatever? They're like, yeah, dude, we don't do homecoming at a football game because <laughs> no one would come. We do it at a hockey game. I was like, okay, got it. So it was good. It was sink or swim, right? I mean, I got thrown into the deep end of a place where academically this was also well out of my league. I'm not blowing away the SAT scores or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so. Seeing that process and going into an entrepreneur role and making those changes and then going to school and then getting more involved in kind of the entrepreneur, how did those things help you in what you're doing today? I have nephews and nieces sometimes they, you know look for quote advice. I'm probably the worst person. I'm sure my, my sister is like, do not follow his <laughs> <laughs> path, which is very weird and windy. I think I had pursued stuff I was curious about and interested in. And that helped build a pretty wide range of just experiences. And I'm, I've just been in a lot of rooms, seen a lot of different things. So on the one hand, I'm not that surprised <laughs> very often, you know, especially once you've done a few companies on your own, oh, we're out of money, not surprised. <laughs> like, <laughs> are you hearing from friends and you're talking to people? And I would say like that stuff doesn't keep me up at night as much as it, it you know, over time you sort of wear in the, the scars kind of get worn in and all those things were great for me. I think that it's some challenge for me is that I'm not deep in an industry. I think that is one challenge for some people is to, to sort of decide. I don't think you have to actually make a conscious decision about this, but you may end up in your forties and go, oh, well, I've been in fashion retail for 15 years. Am I a fashion retail person now? You might be. I mean, then that's okay. Or you can always make the change. For me, I'm not in any vertical, but I'm now kind of unemployable because I'm early stage expert. Is that a thing? I mean, those how the experiences have kept me and, and they've just generally helped me figure out what I don't want to do. I'm pretty clear about what I don't want to do and I'm getting better at figuring out what I do want to do. So for me, I'm very passionate about zero to one. I love that. I love people that are way smarter than me. So early, really deep technical stuff is exciting to me, even if I can't understand exactly what molecule is talking to what molecule and what the <laughs> hell is going on. So marrying those things for me is where I've been, you know, always kind of 
finding a great smart people to work with and solving interesting problems. My challenge is I can get bored with a problem pretty quick. That has been probably one of the biggest game changers for me personally is exactly what you said in knowing what you don't want to do. Yeah. And I think I was on the like, okay, take the next best opportunity, take the next best opportunity. And, that, and I've said this before a few times because this comes up quite a bit, actually, that exact thing. And I think it's so important where you're going to get advice from everybody, right? Your mentors and people that you deeply respect. And a lot of them are going to have like, you know, this is what you should be doing. And maybe it probably will lead to like, okay, if you want to hit, go higher and higher and higher up for sure, there's different ways to do that. At some point, you just got to start to follow your gut, as you had mentioned earlier. Did you have you found that to be the experience? Yeah, I think it's weird when you get a little older. Is goal setting is not maybe as obvious as it was. You know, okay, I'm a high school lacrosse player. I want to be on first team All State Ohio lacrosse. Whatever. Okay, that's a pretty easy objective to put out there for yourself. When you get to an adult, you have a lot of <laughs> a wide range of things you could pursue as goals. It could be personal goals, family side achievements, professional goals, financial goals, and you definitely can't do them all. That is, for me, been the harder part is narrow in which one of these lanes do I want to be the best at? It's to say there's four or five lanes of personal, professional, you know, athletics, health, whatever, you know, thing. I'm not going to be able to pursue all of those things. And it's a hard concession to make if you're an alpha idiot trying to like still do certain things. So I've had to step back. You know, I, I did a lot of stuff in the, in the entrepreneurial community for a long time and wake up startup. We do all that. And at some point you're like, wow, this is opportunity cost, even though I really loved it and I pursued it. So for me, it's what's the shelf life of this thing for me? Is it still interesting? Is it still adding value to me personally? But then having to figure out what are these other goals I have that are longer term, that are not going to satisfy my, this month, we're going to do something fun. No, I want to pursue something that takes a thousand days to get done. That has been resetting that longer arc of achievement again in my life has been something that I've really had to think about. What impact has that had on you when, let's say, cutting those things out and taking greater focus on fewer things? How has that impacted you? I mean, on the positive side, you just get narrow with friends and time and family. And I think the pandemic might have done this for some people. When a bunch of stuff got cut out because of just the circumstance, you didn't miss it as much as you thought you did. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're like, wait, I've been going to three networking things every week. What was the pursuit of that again? What did it add? Did, was it doing what I want to, if I had to start net new, would I add that back in first thing? And a lot of people, you know, have chosen to do other things, which is good. You know, it was a good reset um, for whatever cost that we paid for it. So I think for me, it's really, it's done that for me too. It's let me, put out some things that are important to me that I know I'm not going to get done. I want to run a hundred mile run. I mean, I've been doing long distance endurance stuff for 10 plus years. This is not something you just, just most middle-aged. 0% chance right across the table. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even so who's got this experience for me, it's not happening that quickly. Right. So it's allowed me to think about in startup world. I think one of the, let's try to bring this back into something to focus here. I think one challenge for entrepreneurs is in, in early stage people in general is that there's a fictitious timeline that's set out for these things. 
that does not match reality. So you put a business plan together. Oh, this is the market size is $6 billion and we're going to do 20 million in revenue by year three and yada, yada. And then year three, you're doing $600,000 in revenue and it's harder than you thought. And now, you know, the timeline's tripled and it's not going to be three years. You're going to exit and, you know, be on your yacht. It's going to be 10 years <laughs> and you're, you're going to have a paddle boat and <laughs> it's changing. Yeah. That I think is really hard in early stage is more of a treadmill than anything else. It's not really a marathon because there isn't really an end. And I think it's a misunderstanding of starting a company is this company doesn't have an ending. Liquidity is, is a pretty hard thing to achieve for most companies. Even companies have been run for decades. Selling a company's hard, going public's hard. And I think I would have done myself better just to say, like, if you're getting into this, you're getting into this to pursue this for a long period of time. That's not how we talk about entrepreneurship, especially tech entrepreneurship. It's start it, scale it, raise money, liquidate it, sell it, go on your whatever trip. I think it'd be better for us. And for me, it's been like, okay, let me just think about building something with no end in mind. I'm just trying to build the best thing possible. And I've got to be committed to five to 10 years of doing this, at least to start, or it's not worth pursuing. I heard a quote that was, I want, and it was from a guy named Greg Alexander, who is a successful founder and exited his company. And he said, I want a company that can last forever but could be sold tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, and it, I didn't understand that. Like it, I had to get out of kind of the whole venture world yeah. um, to understand that. But it's just that we want to build this. We want to build this to be a strong company, right? That we've got the yeah. margins to be able to withstand ups and yeah. downs in the market. We are very intentional in, in how we hire and how we invest. But if the opportunity comes where it makes sense to have that liquidation event, then we're ready for it. But if not, we've got a great business yeah. and, and we're building something we really enjoy, we really like doing. And I think that long-term focus also makes it, it's a lot easier to make those short-term decisions and yeah. it could pull some of that short-term. This, this is what I found to be in my case. Have you found that to be similar? I have, yeah. And it's easy to say these things later on. It's a long-term game. But look, when you have an idea and you want to start a company, and let's say you're marginally aware of venture ecosystems and things like that, there is a pathway that seems to be paved to go down. But it's weird because if you were going to open up a barbershop on the corner, the venture pathway door never opens up, understandably. That's not what they're there for. But too many people, when they have the idea, they get sucked into the pursuit of one path. Okay, this is a small business. This is a lifestyle business. This is a venture business. Before ever just saying, whoa, <laughs> do we have a customer? Is anyone going to care about this? I feel like there is not enough time spent just figuring out how to solve problem one. I think there's a bootstrapping mentality that some people, and, and it's maybe emerging back up now. And but a lot of it is it is kind of a hype thing. And I mean, there's a lot of good feelings to, to you know, I raised money. Uh, there's a lot of validation. I mean, venture capitalists can be very smart people. It can be a very sexy thing. They're going to write a headline in a newspaper saying you did this. I mean, there's a real feeling of great achievement by having that. And often it is. But that isn't the goal. <laughs> the goal is to build the company, as you were saying. And and I yeah, so I, I think it's hard to take the emotion. And this is like a tug of war with yourself and with your friends and partners and people you talk to is try to like center it back to what do we want to do? 
What do we want to build? What are we really in this for? And hey, if you're in it for just, I want to try to make as much money as possible in a short amount of time, that can be a pursuit, but it's a really specific kind of pursuit. <laughs> and so the, you know, it's a complicated story, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's been, wow, it's really fun to watch. I'm more impressed with companies that I find out they're like 75 years old. That is impressive, right? I mean, wow, somebody suffered <laughs> painfully <laughs> at the beginning of that thing. Maybe again in 20 years, they suffered again. And then again, in they probably did. They had to keep reinventing it. But the fact that that company and the people that came with it, if they did you know, good things, it's really fascinating to me that and I don't know there's any formula there. I think there's just good people trying to solve problems, doing it the right way and, and a lot of luck. <laughs> and, and to me, and we've talked about this before, it's that there isn't a one right way to do it, right? Yeah. Whether that's bootstrapped, venture capital, whatever that may be, or just, you know, we don't have to say venture, just be investment in general. I think the way I try to think about it is what can I build? And then do I need to take on venture to hit my goal? If I've got this giant world changing goal, probably going to need some sort of capital yeah. um, in order to get that. And and I think like what you said is dead on. It's, it's a path. And I, I encourage people to look at all paths yeah, and, yeah. and try to figure out what you want. Yeah. I, it's hard, right? I mean, because a lot of times the advice of convenience is the one that you know is the loudest in our head. So if you happen to have a friend who's been in venture, when you start talking to them, they're like, well, yeah, I know these venture people. I'm like, I can introduce you this here. If you happen to be in more small business or lifestyle, you might find people that open up doors in that pathway. And that advice by con convenience can be heavily influential for people. And it's hard when you know I'm not time. I got to go network to find somebody else to do the tell me some different thing, right? You want to keep moving as fast as possible. So I, I just always caution myself, anyone else is, okay, am I only getting advice of convenience right now? Or is there another place to pursue information here that might change my mind on what route to take? And honestly, like doing endurance sports has helped me on that a lot. There is a million different ways to achieve running a 50 mile run and getting the fitness level to do that. And there's everybody who thinks they've got the right idea to do that. And then there's you and what you're a, capable of, have the time for what your actual goal is. I'm not going to win a race. I just want to cross the finish line before the, the cutoff time, right? So it's really knowing what you want to do, what you're going to pursue will slowly help you figure out where the advice path is right. If you can have a conversation with your younger self, up to you on the age, what would that conversation be? What advice would you give them? I, you know... <laughs> It's hard to say. I think I would have maybe tried to start a company sooner than I did. I don't know that I was ever waiting for the right time necessarily, but I just don't think I was aware of not necessarily how easy it is. I just didn't, I wasn't surrounded with those types of people that were pursuing, you know, I was in jobs, right? I was in that. And I, I think I would have tried to maybe considered pursuing that even earlier and starting doing that. But I've been fortunate and lucky to just been able to work with great people and be in crazy weird things and I've done bioag, I've done GE, I've done consumer, whatever, real estate related. To me, it's all fun. I think I, you know, I was telling a young person, just optimize to experience <laughs> whatever you can do to pursue things. Don't hesitate for one second to take that next trip, to call that friend, go do that thing. You never know what's going to happen and, you know, just that pure curiosity, that's the regret you don't want to have is the thing you almost did. 
So luckily I have, I probably have more regrets on the, the things I did too much of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I might've told my younger self to maybe like hold off on the last shot of the night on a, the 22 year old Brian at the bar. <laughs> I can't think of a better place to wrap up than right there. <laughs> Brian, this is awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Cal.